hit record right now just so we can put it that out would there. Be pretty Maybe sweet. somebody can listen. Pinewood Derby Adult I League. I think an Adult League of Pinewood Derby would be more popular than Correct volleyball, then softball, then bowling. Then I think so. Yeah, I'll get uh, it started in Ohio. Get it. You know, it, it probably would. My dad was like the best car builder. We would always go to like see, and that's what's wrong with everything. He's like, yeah. I, okay, so everybody's dad built the cars. Yeah, I built my own car. It wasn't as cool as everybody else's car, but it was my I'm the same my car. Way. I'm the same. My car sucked, but my dad made me do all the work for it. Yeah, I he it was like, and that he, made all the difference. He did the design, but I had to sand the, the shit out of it, and I had to like I did have to do a lot of work. Your dad's with like, him. I'm not sanding this. Yeah, no, yeah. He's you like, got to do that yeah. part. I mean, he made me do like the unfun part, like, but I didn't run the drill. You know, like, you know, I was. I you think, had a drill, or not a drill, a saw, the saw, yeah. the table saw. Yeah, we. My dad had a lot of tools. He's we cut it by dude. hand with a hacksaw. Yeah, I had, I had the Armstrong power unit on this like ancient coping saw from 1935, <laughs> like, hacking away little chunks of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I did not. You went, you went the low tech way. Well, we didn't have power tools. Yeah, it was just you and your mom. Right? Yeah, like, we didn't <laughs> have power tools either. But it's because my dad was a doctor. He was like, I hire people to do this stuff. <laughs> 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 we, we had a hacksaw in our basement, but and a couple. We had a, my dad had a whole like tool bench in the basement when I was a kid. He had like a a vice. I remember I used to play with it with my action figures all the time when I was a kid. Put dudes in the vice. What an active imagination. I don't know. That's that's all I got, guys. Fine with Derby <laughs> Racing for adults. Yeah, that would be yeah. That's solid. It could be big. Yeah, that could be. I think I'll get on it. I'll form a because I think that would be super fun. Like <laughs> I'd participate. It would in that. be it would be one of your trips back. From, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Saudi you might even be able to get it going in the compound. Just get a few uh, potentially bring, bring back ten kits. You know, potentially. Do you guys have um, Boy Scouts there? Like are there are there programs there like are that? Two Boy Scout troops in the city of Jeddah that I'm aware of. One is attached at a university that's 45 minutes north of us, and one's in the city, and they meet at um. They meet at the office building of a major government contractor. <laughs> so <laughs> that's kind of weird. I mean, it's it's they're doing weapons design and security contracting and and Boy Scouts <laughs> and that building. That's pretty crazy. Well, everybody, welcome. We've been at this for two minutes and forty seconds, but when we first recorded, Grant was kind enough to say, "Hey, Neil, you should record Drew right now." I was like, "Yeah, that'd be great to record." And then we we're like, "Let's do a super podcast." So here we are. It's a supercast. <laughs> I have no idea what I even want. I think I had an idea of what to talk to, but after being at PV3 for as long as we have, my brain's really. What do you? What do you? So, what are your guys' thoughts on PV3? Because I'm really kind of overwhelmed with everything, but it's like a good overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. Like lots of inputs. There's a way of of being immersed and exhausted. Yeah, but at the same time, you're like, I'm ready to go. Ready to go. go yeah. Kick ass. Yep. Yeah. How, so what are your guys' thoughts? What are you guys' overall reactions? Um, well, I was here last year. Yeah. And so I'm I'm a return customer. Me too. And uh, Me three. Oh, no, no. I wasn't last year. I'm sorry. I'm a liar. I'm a first-time customer. Oh, me too, then. <laughs> um, and so coming back for me was way different from coming last year. Last year I was totally unknown. Yeah. Right? And I gave, I spoke last year, but I, nobody had any idea who I was. And I didn't know anybody else either. Yeah. Except for, I knew Diego. 
And I think that might have been it. Um, and I came with my wife. Yeah. So we we went to all the classes together, but then we weren't all that social with everybody else. Um, I feel like this year the level of discourse was higher. I feel like it's more focused this year. Yeah. Um, which I really appreciated. Like I think, I think the people who came for that focus have had a, a major amount of input and a major amount of information to process that's going to be super useful. Um, I found things that are going to be super useful for me. But the other thing that I like to come for is because I'm I'm really isolated where I work, and so for me it's a huge pick-me-up and a huge boost in energy to come and be around people who yeah. understand the issues we're trying to deal with who are working on solutions in their own sphere of influence. And uh, like just, just that amount of energy and camaraderie that I feel is a huge boost for me personally. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. What, so I guess for, my question for you, man, is like, you know, you've been pretty much in wilderness or the desert with, you know, working with local tribes, people. Then you come here and you have like all that stuff going on. And it's like small scale sort of thing. Now you come back this year and you're kind of like a rock star status. Like everybody's like, you know, oh, you want to green 30 million acres of the desert and everybody's all jacked up. Like what kind of, how did that make you feel? I guess like when you're giving this speech and then you, you have this big audience, you're used to being in the desert. Now you're back here. Like what? Does Um, that make sense? It seems, it seems like there's a big contrast in that to you. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, like, yeah. Like, I mean, like, it's because it's kind of like you're doing your work and then you come in, like, you're a guy who I can tell just gets to it and it gets immersed. And now you're here and you're relaxed. The, uh, well, first of all, let me say this. Out where I work, I'm, yeah, I'm with tribes of settled nomads, but yeah. those people are also my friends. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. And I'm not saying there's any, I wasn't it, trying to imply that. Like, I'm, I'm pretty comfortable out yeah. there. On a social level, uh, not to say that I don't have to do uncomfortable things every now and then, yeah. But the well, let me put it this way: two months ago, we got visited by some very high-level people, yeah. And then because of that visit, we had a press conference with like eleven different newspaper agencies and pan-Arab TV stations, and so I had to do. I had to do a TV interview in Arabic with a channel that broadcasts from Morocco to Iraq and from Lebanon down to Yemen. Yeah. And that was really surreal to me. Yeah. <clears throat> and and now, like, there's... I've had a couple instances since then where, like, I've been driving and I have to pass through a checkpoint with security guards. And one of the security guards will recognize me and be like, you're that tribal American guy, yeah. right? And they're kind of excited about it. Yeah. So And so that's that to me is way more strange yeah. than the idea that a bunch of permaculturalists are going to be excited <laughs> about a really cool permaculture project. Yeah. Right? Well, what I was really trying to say, and I think I, I just worded it really poorly, is, you know, going, doing your work, and I think it's the same, like Grant and I were talking about it at breakfast too, like, you're just doing your work and you're just doing the thing that like 
you is driving you like it's coming from inside mm-hmm. and you start doing it and then you start gaining like all this attention and like people people starting to take notice of what you're doing and then it's like the transition like th- does that make sense like does it get weird does it get does it is it like a you know it's a little to be honest for me it's the celebrity aspect of yeah. it is, is not something i expected but i i did know what potential this project had yeah fairly quickly after i started working on it and i think <clears throat> you know if i were working on 6000 acres in nebraska nobody would really care yeah. it's it's not that it, it's the context that makes this interesting yeah right? and i think it's similar for grant too like he's in you know he's in he's in the belly of the beast he's in the belly of the beast and he's a tree farmer living he was at one time living in a fema trailer sleeping in a bucket but but neil's right i mean neil and i are are both midwesterners by birth and the celebrity of what i'm doing if there is any is not when i'm home yeah here yeah because i'm doing something very different whereas when i'm doing something drastically very different where i live no one really wants to talk about it or no one will, will pay it any mention because it, yeah you you're, you're a bit of a novelty yeah yeah but also a bit of an outcast and perhaps and perhaps. a bit of a i guess like a he's the beginning of the hostile takeover <laughs> of monsanto farmland i mean you're in the belly of the beast time will tell yeah so I th- I think so. I let's be- let's vow right now to have the same podcast. Okay, a decade in a decade, in a decade? and let's see what happens. I think that's a good idea. In the meantime, maybe yep. I will have done some cool shit by then too. Besides podcasts, oh, you're doing cool shit. I'm trying, yeah, I'm trying to do. But maybe I can talk about cool shit I did in the city of Columbus, and you know what I mean. Like a, that's that's my goal. I mean, it's not going to be greening the desert or but i mean it's still cool i mean it's all relevant like if you can make a difference in your own way that's all that really matters that's absolutely right yeah, yeah. so okay so, okay, so we, we, we were talking, talking the last, last time, time we kind of we kind of came, came to an end we we're talking about, talking about water, water management, management. some problems, problems. Mm-hmm. so what what do we what think, do think is the is the solution, solution to, to or what do, or what, what, what do people need to do it kind of to, to, to help combat this water. water. You know, we're draining, you know, we're draining our water, our water. Can, as individuals. Yeah. You know the there's a lot to be said for conservation of water and your own consumption. There's also a lot to be said for things like how we manage our wastewater, gray water and black water use. Um, there's a lot to be said for, but. That stuff is important in the aggregate, but there, I, I, I don't know the numbers behind this, but I suspect that the systems that are in place are way more important than individual action. Yeah. yeah. Which is kind of a sad thing to say, but the, I mean, the way me saving water in my house by taking a shorter shower isn't going to affect the fact that. 85% of the water in most countries goes to agricultural use. Yeah. And it's not going to have any effect on the fact that the Colorado River doesn't reach the Gulf in Texas anymore because it's the most managed watershed on the planet. And it all gets transported to California through open channels where 30% of the water is going to evaporate. You know? 
So it, there's there's a lot to be said for individual virtuous action. Yeah. But I get but it's agriculture where water use is going. Yeah. In in every country in the world it's around 80 to 85%. Even in Saudi Arabia, 80% of water use in the country goes to agriculture. That's pretty wild. And I, 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 I agree with much of that, but I, I don't want to make the point that, uh, I mean, that sounds almost disempowering. Like it's, yeah, things are so screwed up. So let's just do, you know, our, our, our minimal actions aren't going to do any, anything. And I, and I really recommend that it's massive civil courage is enacted where even on the individual level, you can look at all these things and say, you know what, I'm going to go pee in my front yard right now. And by immediately impacting the water cycle, not not taking a shorter shower that is extracting ever so less water from a, an aquifer somewhere, but actually re reengaging with that water cycle, and you know, putting a rain garden in your yard and then peeing in your yard, you know. Um, is there a policy on land that you must pee in the grass? Yes, that's awesome. I just wanted to say that I love peeing outside. What about visiting women? <laughs> yeah. Encouraged. You know what you should do? You should invest. There's these uh, there's these tools that women can use if they're like construction workers and they can stick it in their pants and pee out yeah. their fly. Mm-hmm. Yep. You should invest in some of those for Versaland, you know, <laughs> just have them on have them on site. Guest implements. Guest implements. Yeah, like you don't like peeing outside, here's this. I'm just more of a Pants down, let it just, yeah, just you know, let it go for it. Trickle, yeah, okay. But because uh, those implements, <laughs> however useful they may be, um, most women don't want to share implements that they. That is true, yeah. And then commit to the sanitation of these things. That is true. Very- and then we then we go back to the water problem because now we have to use these aquifer systems to wash this. All right, so that was a fair idea. Miss, I know we just met, but I assure you, I washed off this implement in the creek. (laughs) That's right. Anyways, before I turn this conversation ridiculous, um, yeah, I mean, so, but okay, so now what is, so, I mean, we know that the biggest issue with our water is, is, you know, these big agriculture things. So, I mean, so let's say, you know, you're against it. I mean, would you be good to to just start buying farmland and... And reworking it? Yeah. I think... Uh, I think you've either got to co-opt the power structures that exist, or you've got to overtake them. It's one or the other. And to the degree that... We can create agricultural systems that don't depend on irrigation. Now, there's 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 a there's a whole lot of theory going into what I say, and no, not a whole lot of implementation. You know, but that's why not, that's why we have Grant here at the table. <clears throat> well, but Grant's in a place that's fairly water wealthy. That's true. You know, how do you rework how we grow cotton in Arizona? Nobody's got any clue. How do you do I, cotton? I, have a perfect, I, I know how you do that. How do you do cotton as a polyculture? You bring back sheep and stop growing cotton. You just change your fiber shed. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's how, that's how it would be done. You could use yaks. Yaks have good fiber, too. You could bring in some possums yeah. from Australia. Yeah. Yeah. The, the other idea I think you could do is you just start competing with them with hemp. Yeah. yeah. Up in Montana. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You, grow, you grow hemp and you grow your fibers in the north and you grow your 
nuts and your oils in the south or something. You figure out something else you can do with the south. It converts tree farms too that are just used to for paper mills. Yeah. I, here's yeah. a here's a question: Why is hemp is it like? Isn't it like one of the few re, very restorative annual crops? Hemp, if I'm understanding it correctly, like it gives back to the soil. Like why why is that not really talked about in permaculture? Do you guys think? Because it's I, illegal to grow. I a lot have of no places. knowledge of, of of hemp cultivation as far as its mineral contributions to the soil, given the mineral cycle. I think that might be a bit of overall wishful thinking on uh, you know biologically to do other motivations yeah. you know, regarding that plant but um it tr- certainly makes sense from a from a biomass perspective and from a, a time to yield perspective and from general pest resistance compared to cotton or, or many other yeah. crops yeah well, even like as a green manure wouldn't that be like a sort a good source of green manure no if it, if you're using it as green manure then you're not using it in other things the yeah. opportunity cost is going to be super high but the other, the in addition to what Grant said, hemp grows in places that have water. Yeah. Whereas cotton does not. Cotton tends to not. Um, and hemp requires something like one fourth the water that cotton does. So in that sense, if you're looking at production of major industries derived from agriculture based on your crop per drop, then hemp has a huge comparative advantage. Um, I, I've got a bit of a soapbox about cotton because the the sixth largest body of fresh water on the planet is gone because of cotton production out in uh out on the Caspian Sea. The Caspian Sea is is it? It's not the Caspian. It's the uh, yeah, it is. It's the Caspian Sea. Yeah, it's gone. It it's entirely disappeared in the last fifty years. Uh, because it was a national policy to grow cotton and to drain all the watersheds that were draining into the sea. And all the fisheries, all the tourism is just decimated. And now that, and, and it, it's not cotton's fault. This is, this is a human problem. This yeah. is a management problem, but. It's a great example of how policy, even modern, modern agricultural policy can influence ecosystems at such a tremendous scale. At a huge scale. Yeah. And, and, and what happened was the sea dried up and all of the pesticides that had been sprayed on the cotton that were washed into, they concentrated on the bed of the lake, on the bed of the sea. And now that the sea has dried up, all those pesticides are being blown back onto the agricultural land as dust. And the productivity of the land is collapsing. So they've grown cotton for 40 years or 30 years. I don't know the details, to be honest. Um, the whole sea dried up and now the land where they're growing the cotton is not able to really grow cotton anymore. That's crazy. So the, the, it's an example of how modern agriculture not just destroys our ecosystems, but destroys itself over time. What do you think? I guess like, why do you guys think, that's not like people aren't having a conscious people have a very short memory yeah like I, they, I brought they, up the they, they remember yesterday yeah and they they can read about a year ago in a, in a book yeah but beyond that it's entirely revised history and it's it's cognitive dissonance where they're not going to want to experience a negative outcome they want to just assume everything's dandy yeah um we even like the dust bowl like i brought it up with neil like how fast people forget about the dust bowl 
and what happened with the mm-hmm. Dust Bowl. And yeah, exactly. Because it's like this weird phenomenon to a lot of people. It's like, no, it's just bad agriculture practices. And revisionist history has has mentions of it in elementary school history books. Yeah. But the sheer ugh, acuteness of it all has been forgotten. Yeah. yeah. I'm sorry. It's the RLC. Okay. The URLC. I I, yeah. I knew I the was. The URAL? I think it's A-R-A-L, but it was the world's fourth largest lake. And now it's gone. As recently as the 1970s. And now it's like 120th the size that it used to be. So do you think they're going to start draining the Great Lakes eventually for agriculture if things keep going the way they're going? Things aren't going to keep going the way they're going. Okay. Yeah, I, th- I, think, I think people would want to do that because it's easier to say, okay, we're out of water here. Where can we get water from? Instead of saying, okay, we have drained all our water, what's a better system that actually cooperates with our local environment? It's easier to look for a new source than to look for a new mindset. Yeah. Right? Well, I know they're already pulling water out of Lake Michigan. For where? I don't know that. I Jesse Ventura had his theories on conspiracy theory. But <laughs> where I mean, where where is it going? The I, I Lake think Michigan it's. Water? I don't remember. I know they're importing it somewhere. I'm not sure where. I'd have to look it up again. Yeah. And um, but, but you're the one with the Google device in front of you, Neil. I'm just gonna, true. I'm just going to say it's true. But I I was double checking myself because I I knew it wasn't the Caspian, but yeah. I couldn't remember the name. Yeah, I think they're doing it for drinking water in other places. I think they're they're pulling it out for drinking water. <laughs> while, you're, while you're Googling, what we should Google the Caspian Tiger. Caspian Tiger, yeah. eh? Caspian Tiger. Yeah. What is the Caspian? That looks cool. Is it extinct? I think so. It is an extinct tiger. What am I looking up about this tiger? I'm just, you know, I think when I think the Caspian Tiger or... Um, you know, what's that other tiger-looking thing that went, uh, the, the Tasmanian Devil? The Tasmanian Tiger. The Tasmanian Tiger. Yeah, Not that Tasmanian one's Devil, the Tasmanian too. Tiger, yeah, yeah. And I'm just like, man, the world needs more tigers. <laughs> there was actually a, a lemur that actually looked like, it was a kind of lemur It looked like a tiger. It's extinct, too. It was on <laughs> Madagascar. Shit. <laughs> but Stripes as a keystone species. Pinstripes now, but, you know, it used to be stripes. For sure. Um... Well, anyways, I mean, I guess uh, what Grant just drew up this conversation. That was a good job. <laughs> That's usually my job, Grant. <laughs> I have no idea what I was going to say now because I started thinking about tigers. Um, yeah, I think podcasts need more random. I think so, man. Random I like it. diversions. I like it, especially when we get really serious and talk about the last, the fourth body, fourth largest body of water is now gone. Um. So I guess, I mean, like, you know, we could focus on a positive thing. Um, 30, 30 million acres. Yeah. That's pretty crazy. We didn't even yeah. talk about that on the last one. <clears throat> That's true. Uh, so that is a projection based on assumptions derived from our last six years of work. In, uh, in some sense... The, the the last it's five and a half years. The last five and a half years, I've been working on a seventy acre site, um, in the desert south of Mecca, the city of Mecca in Saudi Arabia, 
And when we first started out, we had no idea if any of this was really a, a possibility. Um, we're in a, the foothills of a mountain range that borders the eastern side of a desert coast. I mean, we're only 45 kilometers away from the Red Sea. So you've got the Red Sea, a narrow strip of land that's desert, and then these mountains. And we're in those foothills. And so what we do is we use, we manage flash floods to uh, convert areas of this desert into something that isn't a desert. I don't want to call it a forest because it's not dense enough. I don't want to call it a savanna because it's way more planned than that. It's it's something in between. It's but it's we're establishing silvopasture systems on this desert land that are um, that actually put more water into the aquifers than we take out. Yeah. So it's regenerative. It's regenerative. Regen, regenerative in terms of uh, groundwater. It's regenerative in terms of it actually is building soil in a place where soil does not exist. You know, our our ground is very, very rocky, but where there's sand or something that you can plant in, it's it's 99% silicates. And so we're building soil, we're restoring water into the aquifers, and we're creating a civil pasture system that can serve as an economic base for the people that live there. And that's the that's the objective. So on this seventy acre site over the last five and a half years, I feel like we have proven the <clears throat> the ecological sustainability of this system, um, with an eye towards producing an economic system that can uh, that is self perpetuating, and that can be managed in a way for the people there to become productive rather than dependent. I do think the 70-acre site we're on is going to become profitable, but it, it's all been experimental, so there's a ton of mistakes we've made on it that we're learning from as we move to a 6,000-acre site. And that 6,000-acre site, we think, is going to be productive enough that out of the 500 families that live in this area, we should be able to six-tuple their annual income. That's a lot of money. Well, it's not that much. It's just they're making very, very little now. But I mean as an improvement. But yeah. for them, yeah, for them it will be a lot of money. Yeah. And they'll be able to have savings and to send their kids to school and to afford their own houses and to be able to pay for hospital care and all these other things that we're, that we're hoping to help them with. So... That's that's the objective on the 6,000-acre site. I feel like if the 6,000-acre site is successful, if we can pull off the project on that site, then we'll have proof that it's ecologically viable, that it's economically a boon, and then it, what it becomes is a prototype for rural development in the whole of Saudi Arabia, and especially up and down the West Coast, where the geography and the climate is duplicated everywhere. The patterns that we're operating in are duplicated all the way south down to Yemen and all the way north up to Jordan. So when I talk about we could do this on 30 million acres, it's, it's a, a, an extrapolation 
from the work that we've done previously and a projection based on the fact that the patterns that our design are based on, that our design is based on, are fractals that are multiplied and uh, that occur everywhere up and down this coast. So because our design is based on a fractal, we know that it can scale up to that. That's pretty awesome, man. And I think, like, so kind of taking what you're doing and, like, maybe applying it back, because I want to tie Grant into this conversation, too. So I guess, like, you're doing that from the ground up there, building an economy, and it's going to be giving back. It's going to be just really just building something for that community. Yeah. And then we look at Grant, who is in the middle of the beast, and he's trying to do build his own economy and do that and, and kind of set and pioneer an example of how people can farm and make a profit on a large scale. Like yeah, the, the parallels that I immediately see between my, myself and Neil is that, so Neil is, is, is working in an area that, that has settled, settled no bands out. There's already population living there. Yeah. And, you know, rainfall is far lesser than, than my own, but I'm in a place with, with reverse migration happening where, I mean, you know, obviously some of those nomads ended up migrating to the cities, but in the Midwest, we're still losing population. Yeah. And they're all, you know, going towards the urban center. So my hope is, but via comparable fractalized systems, that I can resettle the landscape and that families can can return to rural areas and we're going to see more population homogeneity um, you know, reimagine the, the the landscape as far as population distribution, um, which is contrary to policy. You know, the, this 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 zoning thing of wanting to limit urban sprawl is it such an advanced state that it basically removes the possibility of of resettling the landscape on smaller parcels because it's under the guise of it's just going to be all make mansions when in reality it's going to be. Tiny houses and FEMA trailers and and four hundred square foot owner built cabins and happy giggling families you know raising their own food on their own site yeah so um, that's the pattern that I see proliferating from what my work is that you know we're going to be able to see families on five acres supporting themselves yeah that's a very Jeffersonian vision yeah it's a agrarian awesome. Jeffersonian no I agree for me in the city I guess so. I'm still trying to formulate my plan of what I'm doing, but I know where I live. Real estate is really cheap and there's small houses and it's like I can, I, I don't know exactly how I'm going to do it, but I know like we're working with the city to get, so we can uh, graze animals in the parks, like get city parks and raise animals in the city parks. And like, they'll give us portions of the parks to do that because thankfully Columbus is, Right now, pretending to be all about doing this. You want to hear some real podcast stuff right now? Yeah. One really great solar flare, and all the infrastructure just gets nuked. Yeah. And every city employee is just going to have to go back to their own lifeways, and anybody can graze livestock in the city park. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, well that's some real podcast That actually is because, like, Ohio's grid is Look not. Look out for those solar flares. <laughs> well, Ohio's grid is really not that good. Like, we have one of the worst grids. Like, we, uh, most, um, I know from when I was in electronic sales, most of the like warranty claims are from 
uh, so like basically grid flashes that would fry people's electronics and everything. So that, that is actually a very real possibility in Ohio. What she just said, like, I remember reading how a solar flare could wipe out most of the infrastructure in the United States with grids because they're not built very well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, I, f- I feel like for me, like repurposing the inner city, inner city with urban farming and, and doing that sort of thing and trying to see how much production I can get in my basement, in my, in my yard, and and everything like that, and generating my own personal economy, I think that's it's a huge possibility. I think it's you know this. It's very empowering. It, yeah. it is, yeah. And, and the thing is too. So the the city now, and I don't know. Like I I, I am prepared. I don't know if I want to raise chickens yet because it's not my land, but the city now is trying to put up their own regulations for chickens, but it's really just a tax. But I already have my friend who's a, he's a blogger and he gets like 600,000 visits a month and he's like, oh, whatever, I'll just write and have sick my audience on him if we need to. Like, nice. and it's just like having him call. Like it's, it's, I think it kind of goes back to stuff like knowing how to use the press, like alternative media now is just. To me, alternative media, like what I'm doing, I don't know if this would be considered alternative media, but I guess it is. But alternative media now is just turning into regular media because it's just they just are trying to make money. They're forgetting what what impact and power they can actually have. So I think it's just we need to go back to to those things. And I think, too, like having skills to learn how to ride a horse, stuff like that. I think like the, the more we remember how to do that stuff, the better, like the better we can. I don't know. Uh, but I, I, I mean, that's my goal for me personally is to get stuff going in the city. I'd like to learn some skill sets and go to a place like where my parents live, like Youngstown, where you can get you can get a house with you know five acres for fifteen thousand dollars, and then you just have to do a lot of work to it. But I mean, in the city area with that kind of land, like you could have yourself a nice homestead on an existing property that that is just abandoned. So to to share some metrics for for urban dwellers, um, most most lots in a you know neighborhood platted in the teens, twenties, thirties, forties, the lots are typically uh, sixty six by by one thirty two, and a rod is is like sixteen and a half feet. A rod is the old unit of measure for you know that equals an acre more or less. A few of them. So five lots a a, a, a lot a block that's five lots wide. Yeah by 132 foot deep five lots is one acre so 0.2 acres per lot five lots is an acre so if behind that's an alley and then there's another five lots behind that you know your your block is two acres and if you're in a declining urban environment columbus detroit wherever you know if you buy the one five thousand dollar house in a foreclosure auction and the rest of the houses are abandoned you know before you know it you've got a functional homestead yeah for not a lot of money on two acres Yeah. yeah Well, even this, like, I mean, so let's say, like, Columbus is actually booming. Columbus, my area of Columbus is just crazy. Like, it's not, it doesn't make sense. They're, they're doing the classic. We're going to, you know, kick out all the, all the immigrants and poor people and we're going to build condos and stuff like that. I mean, that's like, it's going on. In the, What's driving the boom? <sighs> Ohio State University probably nationwide has large offices there. Verizon has what large Presidential offices. races. Presidential races, actually, tourism actually is a huge input for Columbus, um, and I think a lot of that is to do with like Ohio State football because 110,000 people are in that stadium every weekend that it goes on. So that's extra money coming into the economy. 
Uh, tourism surprisingly drives a lot of it. But we need to produce more football games, <laughs> right? But what's, I, what's the I believe f- on a football, football game? is the means of production. It is the <laughs> yeah. source of all, yeah. all capital. But okay, but even so, this like so, what could I mean? Because reality, like my mom has done all this network for me, and I don't want to leave Columbus yet. Like I feel like I still have a lot to do there and own my craft. But I think my goal is eventually like I have access to. The land bank because they just want to do something with it because they're like our city. Like Youngstown's a, Youngstown's already dead and it's it, it's like all the industries already left. It's not like there's certain areas in to, like Toledo because you hit the whole Rust Belt and there's cities that they're just clinging onto industry as much as they can. But the, it's just like okay, it's just like our system now. Like people are clinging on to it as much as they can, but it has to fail. Mm-hmm. And so like like I look at Toledo, Ohio. Jeep now, my dad just retired from Jeep, but Jeep now, like they barely pay any tax. I don't think they pay any taxes. They have a factory there. The newest job that if, if you're 18 and you go work at Jeep, the most money you're going to make is $15 an hour. So what's the point? Like what? That's your, that's your ceiling. Yeah. Like what's, what's the point of keeping a large company there that, that, that just produces cars that, that doesn't pay taxes? Like, and again, I'm not for, I'm not for government for what we have today, but, as a city, what's the incentive to keep that there? Well, fifteen dollars an hour is a lot better than nothing per hour. It is, but at the same time, it's like. It's like okay. And I bet you get a good deal on a jeep. Yeah, yeah you do. But <laughs> okay, okay, but, but out of all seriousness, it's kind of like what you were talking about last night, right? The seven years. Yeah. The seven years from when you go to try to do what Grant is doing to get tree production, mm-hmm. and like Grant is hustling, like Grant is. Neil's hustling. A, yeah. Grant is a hustler. Yeah, and Grant is making shit happen. He's hustling and but he's pioneering this this new farming movement in the sense of like, okay, how can we make permaculture on a large scale be profitable, not go into debt? And that's what you're pioneering. But it's There's, Neil and I are both facing what's equivalently an, an eight year chasm yeah. of, of being uh, of having the wherewithal to see the long-term vision and knowing what has to be done and knowing it's going to be slightly painful in the short term to do it but much more painful if we don't do it at all exactly but, so by any means necessary we, we're getting from z- year zero to year eight or eight, eight, eight to eight, ten. ten yeah but after which the whole system kicks in yeah and then you've got you've got a much better problem, which is how do I sell all this stuff that's yeah and now and, being produced? And what we're also, I mean, we've kind of come to this independently is that hey, when we get to that year eight ten, essentially every single year thereafter, we're able to reproduce the system at the same scale we're yeah. with capital that's generated within it, yeah, which is insane, yeah. Which is awesome. Yeah, slash awesome. Yeah, it's it's but, okay, but it's awesome it's, if you can make it to that point. Yeah, but that's what I'm saying. With like to kind of like in contrast, cities like Toledo that are dying, mm-hmm. that that in that industry needs to leave. Like, there's going to be an in between period for them to figure out what's going on, mm-hmm. but then eventually they'll figure it out and then they'll generate their own economy independently. They'll go back to local artisan type stuff like bread shops. Stuff like that, creating a whole economy mm-hmm. for stuff that we're producing. I, th- I think that uh, the many listeners of the sample hour should should Google uh, basically New Zealand's 1980s removal of agricultural subsidies yeah. and the chaos that existed for 24 months, and then the complete rejuvenation of that entire ecosystem and economy. That's a very salient example. They may be the only major country that's done that, mm-hmm. and it was a very ballsy move. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it's worked out very well for them in the end. Mm-hmm. 
I don't know what that movement was actually called. If there is a name for that, like I don't know the dark years and the and the incredible greening or something like that. But just just Google uh, removal of uh, egg subsidies in New Zealand. That makes sense. Yeah. But I, to go back to your thing, it sounds like you're saying, "What's the point of having Jeep there?" Yeah. Because Jeep is like a crutch to people that they've learned to depend on the yeah. Jeep factory. They're making fifteen dollars an hour, but if that were that, if that were not there, oh, it would, the it, people would have to figure something else they're out. They're going to have to. That would actually end up be, be end up being better for them in the long term. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, like, I don't know if you guys have been to Detroit recently, mm-hmm. but there's no street lights at night. All been shot out. No, they just don't turn it on. They With can't. Revelry. They can't afford to. And it's like, you know what I mean? I mean, like, it's it's tax base. There's no more, but it's still, but it's recovering. It's going to take a while. I mean, the, the last corruption of their government is, is, I think, finally fleeing, hopefully. But it is recovering. But it's, it's just like, you know, I guess for me, like, just putting it together, like, urban areas are going to be... I mean, it's when you, the new frontier. Yeah, it really is. And especially when you talk about regenerative agriculture, I mean, you have to regenerate an urban city. Otherwise, you're going to have... You're going to have ghosts. A lot of chaos and a lot of ghost towns. Yeah, and I think, and there's already... Let, let's make a, an innovation challenge collectively here. Um, the first person who has four contiguous city blocks in an urban area in North America, um, I will donate one day of my time if you fly me out and we'll, we'll chat it out, we'll hash it out, we'll turn those six contiguous blocks into the new urban agriculture. Yeah. Neil? Yeah, I'd. Are you in? I'd come down for that. You don't even have to fly me over. Well, I gotta get rich and buy four blocks. Sick. in Youngstown, six, <laughs> six blocks, blocks in Youngstown. Okay, I'll get but it. at at five thousand dollars for every point two acres, that's what is that is that what we're thinking? That's with the house that, that's standing. If you could probably get one with house. a crushed I mean, house for much so, less. So honestly, yeah, but I mean, honestly, too. I th- I th- about a uh, hundred fifty thousand dollars in investment. Well, even it could even be less, depending on how the city sells it to you. Because if you're a yeah. nonprofit, the city will sell it to you at a significantly lower, like the urban farming guys. Like if, yeah, yeah. Like those guys will get a house for a dollar. They redo it. Have you have you seen their videos? Sure. Yeah. And I think it's. I mean, I don't know. I, it's I'm really the person. neighborhood of KC too. But now it's on the rise. Mm-hmm. And I think it's fully gentrified. Yeah. And then soon they won't be afford they won't afford to be able to live there. But anyways, just joking. <laughs> I, well, I wonder to what degree. I, I if I were a city planner or a dictator of a city or a mayor or something. I mean, you can't. What the city has to figure out to do is how do you put the incentives in place so that people are going to revitalize the city on their own. Right. Yeah. No, I think the incentive is just to press land prices and I'll, I'll fly in there and do it on my own. You know, like that's, that's yeah. the market. Right. But yeah. then are you legally allowed to actually produce stuff on there or is it zoned for something I, else? From my understanding, sure. That's, 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 that's say, valid. Hey, I don't, I don't think you necessarily need incentives as far you can't as produce honey financially, on this. This but, is... but just removing the, the burdensome mm-hmm. bureaucracy of zoning laws. Well, would yeah. be well, I, I think the way to do it, and it's coming to me is if I already have a connection at the land bank at Youngstown, which I do, Maybe form a nonprofit, go to them and say, look, I want this space and I want to be able to do X, Y, and Z with it. And I have a feeling the city at that point for a while would leave you alone 
to do whatever you want to do. I'm sure they'll come back and harass you later on. However, you could get it going. It, it, if they harass you or not depends on to what degree the community is going to back you up. Yeah. Because as soon as you're like a popular movement within a section of the city, then there's a huge political cost to shutting you down and harassing you. If you get harassed and they're going to make a lot of people angry, then they're unpopular and that is bad for their re-election campaign. So so you've got you've got to get your political capital up and get your community involved. And that's what Ron Finley did in L.A. Mm-hmm. That's what um, we've we've got a few good examples of this happening where people just kind of led and got enough popular backing for what they were doing that the city was like, okay, we're technically this is not allowed, but we're going to allow it because it would be a bad political move to do otherwise. Mm -hmm. There was a a Kickstarter recently, and I don't know its outcome, but I assume it was successful about more or less doing a documentary on on zoning codes related to tiny houses, just to smaller housing footprints. And creating a blueprint so that you can codify it or modify planning and zoning codes elsewhere, and it becomes this acceptable snippet to add. It's not fear. It's not foreign. It's, okay, this works here in this purportedly hip, gentrified city in the U.S., and we're going to add that to our city, and then it becomes okay and safe. And there's a way of of packaging these things so they become more palatable for bureaucrats, Uh which is not my style, but it is clearly the effective (laughs) – way of doing Neil, things what could you tell us about bureaucrats i feel like you get along with them or you can manage them i mm, i work with a lot of bureaucrats because we rely on we are relying on government ministries to do a lot of work parallel to our project in providing things like infrastructure um in building a hospital providing a police station, all these kinds of things that <clears throat> that the people I work with don't have very easy access to. And what I... It's, it's totally different. Where I am, it's completely different because we're operating under a totally different system with a different set of operating rules and a very different culture. So my experience is... And my my strategy in dealing with bureaucrats is you have to know the system and then you have to solve for that system. Yeah. Right? Everyone operates under some kind of system. If you don't know what it is, then you're not going to solve the problem. If you know the system, then you can figure out, okay, if I want to have policy X changed, who are the key players related to this policy in my system? that I ought to get to know and start talking to them, okay? And, again, different systems are going to have different leverage points, and different systems are are going to require different strategies for approach. If you're living in an oligarchy where people make policy by bribing politicians, if that's how policy is changed, then that's what you have to do, Right? It's either that or operate outside of the system entirely. You've got to know your system and solve for your system. Well said. That's spoken like an attorney. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, I mean, if, like in the U.S., if policy is made by big corporations who are funding all the political campaigns, then you're not going to be able to change policy until you can fund your own political campaign. Yeah. Right? 
And if, if the way that people accept something as legit is they say, oh, here's a peer-reviewed study funded by, you know, big ag company X, that's what people look and they're like, well, we've got this study from the University of Toledo that says this is true. And so that's what I believe because we, we, we have this love-hate relationship with the ivory tower. But if that's what makes people believe that something is true, is you need to have a funded peer-reviewed study then we need to start funding peer-reviewed studies that are doing the kind of research that we want to see happen. Yeah. That's, if that, if, and from the outside, because I'm an expatriate, I honestly don't know the U.S. systems very well, and I've never had to operate within them. But from an outsider, that's what it appears to be. That's what the system appears to be. And so to the degree that you want to change policy in your county or in your town or in your city or in your state or in your, on the national scale, whatever system it is you're in, you've got to know that system. You've got to identify the key people and the key structures, and then you have to start working on those. That's how you operate in a bureaucracy. It's either that or you go out into the woods and you try to remain under the radar for as long as you can until you have enough like and, and this is the other this is the other Which is what I do. <laughs> well, it's not just what you do, but it's it's I I love the Ron Findlay story. This guy just started planting gardens in LA and nobody really noticed, and then all of a sudden he had enough popular support that the city couldn't do anything about it. Right? That's the other approach. Is that you lead from the outside and make it so that politically it's way too damaging to the structure in place to oppose you. Right? Mm -hmm. So there's a way to work from the inside where you're identifying your leverage points and then working on those. And there's a way on doing it from the outside where you create a situation so powerful that they can't oppose it. They can't oppose it without hurting themselves. And that's real political. That's a political act. Yeah, and it's, uh, so these are two different ways of, of obtaining. Like the the outside way is you obtain so much social capital that politically it's like that social capital turns into political power. The other way is you are operating on the political power that already exists and leveraging that with a different kind of social capital. Or against a different kind of social or capital. Or against yeah. it, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yep, that's that's great. Yeah, I think that you talk about the X forms of capital. Yeah. For whatever it's worth, <laughs> political power, appointed or earned. So it should, should, should be one of those should be one of those categories, is it what I'm saying. It has to be leveraged. Yeah. If I don't, you I don't want to make changes. I don't, think, I don't think it should necessarily be held within the realm of social capital. It's almost slightly different. Well, right. Like some, well, in an oligarchy, it's just financial capital converts very easily into political fungible. power. Yeah, right. It's very fungible. But in other systems, it, it, it you need more social capital than you need financial capital mm-hmm. to leverage into political power, and that just depends on what system you're in. Yep. As opposed to anarchy, where you do your own thing. Serious, but it's which is something that I think we would both love, but it's. We're so far away from making that but, happen. Uh, now we're just one solar flare away. That is true. In anarchy, though, social capital turns into political power very quickly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, that's true. Right? Because in an, in, an, in an anarchy system, people are still people. Most people still want a leader to rally around when they don't know what to do. Yeah. 
No, that's going to so happen. In, yeah. in an anarchistic system, social capital turns into political power very, very quickly. I mean, this is we're in the United States, and it was originally an anarchist system. I mean, if you just think government forming in general came from anarchy. So, I mean, it's not... It's If you think, it, it, there has to be... It is the cycle of things. Yeah, it just yeah. has to be a cycle. And it has to be... You know, I I think stuff can work locally, though. I think, you know, you keep it... You keep it on the block. You keep... I mean, I guess, like, look at the social structure of your situation. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, maybe it's it's more... I mean, I don't know. I, I mean, would you want to say? I mean, we, I mean, there were nomads, so it was pretty much an anarchist society. No, no, no? it was tribal. Tribal. Yeah, and tribal's not too far removed. It's very far removed. Okay. Well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and <laughs> do you want to share about um, the the differential you think that that of the major um, differentiator of cultures is whether they're a guilt based system versus a shame based system? I thought that was interesting. I think I think that's a major... So for one of the things that I have on my back burner is a book about integrating into a foreign culture and then being able to operate in that foreign culture to instigate cultural change as a foreigner. Um, and... <clears throat> and foreign culture doesn't necessarily mean in another country. I mean, if my kids were going to school here, the PTA would be a foreign culture to me. Yeah. Right? But if the PTA weren't doing something, <clears throat> were doing something I didn't like, I'd want, to, I'd want to understand what is the culture of this PTA. Because it, for me, that is the starting point of how you start to move things. I think that social structures and forms of government come out of culture more so than culture comes out of these other things. Yeah. Um, so one of the primary ways of understanding a culture at its most base is this idea of having a shame-based culture versus a guilt-based culture. And shame-based cultures tend to be Eastern, Japan, China, a lot of Central Asia, a lot of the Middle East have shame-based cultures. And that means <clears throat> that something is determined to be wrong by how much shame it puts onto your social group, onto your family, onto your parents, onto your ancestors, onto your tribe. And so the restrictions on what you should or should not do are all external. And all of the structures on what you should or should not do are also external. Um, and in a guilt-based society, all of that stuff is internal. And as a result, guilt-based cultures tend to focus a lot more on, individ on individuality rather than on the group. Um, or on society, or on the family, or what, whatever whatever social structure you want to talk about, it, these, these things also fractal up. Yeah. Um, so, to a person from a guilt-based society operating in a shame-based society, once you get to know it, it looks like people in a shame-based society have no integrity, because it doesn't matter what you do, 
behind closed doors, because behind closed doors, there is no shame generated, right? Yeah. It doesn't matter because nobody sees what's going on, so you're not shaming anybody, so it's okay, all right? That's what it looks like to somebody coming from a guilt-based society. Now, someone in that society would absolutely deny that there's no such thing as integrity in that culture, and and this is painting a very black and white picture, yeah. but that's what it looks like yeah. to somebody from the outside, from a different system altogether. In a guilt-based society, someone from a shame-based society looking at a guilt-based society would say, these people have nothing at all to prevent people from doing very heinous things, because there is no shame. Yeah. There's no shame. So, so they just go and do whatever they want. And it, my, my interest in that was that it's about perspectives of, of self-governance and power structures is that everyone, all of humanity, regardless of where we are geographically, is, is that we, we don't want to do harm to others, more or less, and we want to live in peace. But in our mind, we set constructs at how that objective is maintained. And in the U.S., um, one would say that uh, from a liberal perspective is is the only way that murder is not rampant is that we have laws that say murder is illegal or you know the only way we're ever going to prevent murder is by making guns illegal um, versus the the contrary of that you know and we both all both of all parties more or less are, are seeking peace and general you know love and happiness whatever but the manner in which we think those objectives are achieved are entirely influenced upon our, our culture and our upbringing and where those worlds meet is interesting, and that's why I think Neil's work is so interesting. Is, is he's coming from one side to the other, and he's still accomplishing change, which is beneficial to all parties. But it's not in a way that they would have chosen to do that on their own, and he's not doing it in the way that he would ultimately love to do it on his own, as far mm-hmm. as speed and efficiency. Mm-hmm. But he's finding a way to interact within those two worlds and get things done. Collaborating. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm much more. I'm much more a believer that. If there's a certain amount of change that you want to create, it's way easier to work within the existing system than to say, I'm going to create this change by also overthrowing the system that exists. Like, I'm going to. If overthrowing the system is your primary objective, then that's what you have to do. But if there's another change that can occur within that system without you bashing your head against that wall, then it's going to be way easier for you. Um, and so in permaculture, for instance, there's a lot of people that think we need to get rid of capitalism before permaculture can really take place. That, to me, seems like you're, you're talking about I'm going to dry up the ocean because I don't like this puddle over here. You know? Yeah. It's, it's, but that's that perspective. That's that perspective. And I think that the three of us here are probably existing further on the other side of that spectrum. Yeah. Yet still, we want the same outcome. Mm-hmm. So how do we interact with the folks with drastically differing opinions who seek the same outcome? Because their mental process might be different. Totally different, different from ours. Or nuts. But <laughs> different. Sure. Yeah. My, my point is... Permaculture can operate under capitalism, under socialism, under totalitarianism, under a monarchy, under a social democracy, under an oligarchy. 
permaculture can operate that way. Like, if our goal is to change the way agriculture is done, it doesn't really matter what government we're under. Yeah. You know? So why, why tack that goal of, I want to change the way agriculture is done, and I also want this democracy to turn into a more social democracy? Separate those goals and figure out how to do the one you really care about under whichever system you're operating. There's no reason why permaculture also has to include anarchy or this Jeffersonian vision of people moving into the woods and watching the, the rest of the systems collapse. I don't, I don't, it's way easier to disentangle those two things and focus on you know, the goal that's really important to you. Yeah. And, and if you really do want to overthrow your governmental system, then, then don't pull permaculture into that. Yeah. Right? Don't say it's not permaculture unless it's my favorite form of, of government. Because that's stupid. It is. That, that, now, this brings up an interesting point, is that we all interact on various social networks yeah and frankly the one of the most efficient and broad means of idea exchange for us has been facebook groups yeah and there's this factionization of these various facebook groups that are hyper focused upon the political outcomes whatever they may be far left far right you know voluntariness whatever and i think that really takes away from the core thing at hand here is that what we're trying to do is change ecosystems and food systems and the, the noise and the, and what I feel feel is to be exhaustive noise of focusing on political issues, which are completely removed from the ecological outcome is, is counterproductive. And those in this movement, you know what I'm talking about, but it's true for both sides of it or, you know, in every, every bit in between. Every, every perspective. Yeah. Political perspective. So, so this brings up the issue of people care. Cause I just vomited in my mouth. A little. Right, right, right. <laughs> well, you shouldn't because it's, it's one third of what makes up permaculture, right? But again, people care is even less definable than permaculture as a whole. Right? Mm -hmm. It goes with like, can people care function under a monarchy? Yes, it can. Can people care function under a democracy? Yes, it can. Mm -hmm. Can it function under an oligarchy? Sure. It's, it's, again, we can disentangle the political from permaculture. Yeah, I agree. But, but we, a lot, of us and and I cuz I tend to do this as well and the only reason I've been able to not do it is because I've gone to a very foreign place and figured out how to operate under a very different system. We we don't have to fight about politics and permaculture. There there are politics within permaculture, but we don't have to fight about about government and then try to say it's not permaculture unless it's my favorite kind of government. People care can function under any kind of system. As long as you know your system and can solve for it. Mm-hmm. So next steps. Yeah. For who? For, for all of us. Yeah, for yeah. all of us. Or for, okay, so Drew, you're going back to Ohio. Yeah. And you're going to turn your backyard and your basement yeah. into a producing food space. Producing space. Yeah, the backyard, the bed's already built. Um, I got to maybe build a couple more beds. Might be getting a house, another house down the street. 
So it's starting an auction for 500 bucks. So if I get that house. Is this an online only auction? Yeah. No, you're not. What, what, I'm not what is the URL you. for this? <laughs> I mean, if you want to buy the house, let me you. farm it, man. I'll, uh, I'll tell you. I don't necessarily want to pay for it. No, just, I'll send you, I'll send you the links, Grant. Maybe we can work something out. Um, anyways, uh, yeah. So that's it. I mean, I was talking to Grant earlier. I mean, definitely. Half my backyard is is blacktop, and I've been trying to figure out what to do with it. But I think I'm just going to get a hoop house, mm. put it put a hoop house in there. I was talking to Grant already about nursery. I think a nursery business or start businesses there. I Drew, like- yes or no? Are you going to purchase 100 chestnut trees from NewFarmSupply.com and plant them randomly around the entire neighborhood so that when you do acquire it all over the next 10 years, they'll already be growing? That's a great idea. Um, this is a time for action, Drew. Yeah. This is a yes or no proposition. You, you're on the spot. Yeah, let's do it. Why not? How much is that going to cost me? I need to start saving. Well, with the code sample <laughs> <laughs> at newfarmsupply.com, you'll probably get those to your door for under 250 bucks. Well, that's a great deal. Yeah. Okay. So yes, I'm going to do that too. That's cool. I'm going to go around the neighborhood, do that. So what? What are you lacking? To, to be able to do all that stuff. Have you got the knowledge you need? I think so. I've, um, you know, I think with high crop rotation, like using Curtis's system, I can do that. But I, then I want to mix in, you know, some, uh, the nursery, because I think with flowers and then like selling, selling starts, I think mm-hmm. I can make some money to get some cash flows up. Um, but I, th- I think that's, I mean, I, I think I, I have it. I think, you know, and I can figure it out. I'm Are like, you doing any perennial? Um, that's, that's the plan. Yeah. So that's why I want to get the nursery going so I can. And I'm going to talk to Grant about that. Maybe get some, some starters from Grant to you start know, doing perennials. Do you know Tonesmeyer's book, Paradise Lot? Um, no, I'll check it. Oh yeah. Yeah. I got Cause, it. Cause that's what they did. You've yeah. got that book. Yeah. Yeah. Cause if I were to move back to the States on an urban lot, yeah. that book would be, especially in Ohio, yeah. it would be like my, well, I have my blueprint. I have my city lot, and I think I want to do that with my city lot. Mm. So I have a lot that I, I a parcel from the city. Mm. It's really bad soil, um, and I right. What I first did was I put a bunch of wood chips mm-hmm. on there. After I spent six hours cleaning all the trash, my favorite image was this tattered American flag that was there, and it was laying on the ground in the city lot. And I felt that's, like it's very symbolic. Yeah, it really was. Was that, was that a poignant moment? Yeah, well, it was later on when I posted the pictures on Facebook to brag about everything I'd done, so everybody knew what kind of awesome human being I was. And yeah. I, wanted, I wanted to share that. Yeah, but somebody it, it's, keep going. Somebody saw that. Uh, somebody saw that flag, and he was like a military guy. He goes, "Did you handle the flag properly?" And I didn't really want to say no. I just threw it in the trash because yeah. I, I didn't really care. But you should have been like, "Whoever's flag this belongs to, they didn't handle it properly." Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, I think I did say that. I think I did say something along those lines. So, yeah, I think what Tonesmeyer's done, I think I'd like to do that on urban lots, like the lots that I don't own, but stuff that I have, I'd like to do. I'd like to get some cash. You're going to do some, going. some Curtis Stone style farming? Yeah, but I think Curtis has this idea that, I mean, that's a great way what he does to fund that seven year period in the meantime. Like that ten-year period of before perennials kick in mm-hmm. with production, like his style. And annuals can be the thing that yeah fills in that gap. Yeah, that's what Mark Shepard did. Yeah, and that's exactly that's, that's what Mark, what Mark Shepard, Shepard did. did. Yeah, so I think that's my plan. So I think that's that's it's coming together eventually. I'd like to have those skill sets and, like I said, move to young a place like Youngstown near my mom. So when I do have kids, I have a free babysitter. 
Yep. Her dream is to be a grandma. So I think someone I'd like to give that to her. But until then, I got to learn skills. I got to, I got to walk away from my slave job at mm-hmm. this telecommunications company I work for. And have you got a plan for that transition? I'm getting it hammered out more. So no, not a not a good solid one. I really need a good a good solid one. And I think I need to. I think I've been writing some things out. Like there's a potential merger going through, and I've been writing things out. I think kind of hoping I get a severance package, but I don't think it's going to happen. Mm. I think I'm too good at my job. They'd probably just give me a pay cut first. Yeah. So we'll see. I, I, I definitely need to get on that. I think I, I, I definitely realized how when I was here, something I, I definitely realized was my lack of planning. And um, and I'm not in a position like Grant Schultz to just sell everything and, and move on. And hit the land. Yeah, because I have other, other businesses and other commitments that I can't really walk out on. And I and I like where I'm at in Columbus right now, and I think I, I'd like to master my yard first, the plots of lands that I have now, master those, and then from there just get those skill sets down and really start to build. Yeah. So that is my that's my plan. That's cool. Grant Schultz, your plan. My plan. My plan yeah, over the next uh, how long? What, what kind of timeline are we working with here? Over the next year? Is that what you said? Yeah. Okay. Um. Finish infrastructure improvements at Versa Land, and uh, feel good about systems finally getting into a state of, of uh, not necessarily self sufficiency, but you know the the, the flywheel is spinning, and there are, and it's going to be a lot easier to to keep it spinning than really focusing on that inertia to get it get it turning. That's what I'm I'm looking forward to. We're getting closer to 540 RPM. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. Neil? Uh, for me personally, uh, or, well, for the project, we have to develop our internal structure as we scale up from being a, an, a very, very lean NGO to becoming a... We're splitting into a for-profit company with an attached NGO where the one will be funding the other in perpetuity. And so we've got to really get our internal structure set up so that we have all the people in place to handle all the different tasks that we're going to have to tackle related to developing that business as well as related to managing or working with the various bureaucratic structures that we need to cooperate with us. Um, And for me personally, it's... It's uh, determining whether or not I'm in it for the next 10 years, which is what it looks like it's going to be and what that's going to look like, and developing our our, contingent, our emergency contingency plan and developing the what comes after that kind of, kind of uh, idea. And then I'm skilling up on a variety of things. I'm taking some courses. I've got to decide whether or not I'm going to do a PMP and at the same time keep skilling up my on-the-ground farming skills related to fencing. I don't know very much about fencing. I've got to figure out a mobile camel grazing system. Um, I've got to skill up on our Zizifus management 
on our moringa management and uh and really figure out our grazing system on our site so those are the the gaps i have looking at the next year that i've got to fill um to me personally something else that we each forgot to commit to was we're going to create the adult pinewood derby league and we have to have our chapters in each prospective cities back home and what's that what's our deadline for that uh, you think Pinewood is uh, copyrighted? It might be. I I don't know. Neil could probably pull some strings at Boy Scouts of America for us and uh, <laughs> <laughs> when it get it back for us, he could help us take it back. Mm-hmm. Let's let's consult the Oracle <laughs> on whether Pinewood Derby is a trademark thing, copyrighted or trademarked. Either one. Yeah. The question is, is, do we want to have to source the, the blocked kits for uniformity from Boy Scouts yeah. of America or from their contractor, pinewoodblocks.biz, a, a subsidiary of Boy Scouts okay, of America? Well, here's what Boy's Life magazine says. Mm, you're a former subscriber. Yeah, also a former subscriber. Did you ever buy anything out of those back pages? And no, you know, I didn't, but I still think about them all the time. <laughs> I, could, I could sketch that, that uh, build your own hovercraft ad yes. to, the, to, to today, yeah. For me, it was always like that super ripped, like 15-year-old kid. Yeah. Do you remember those pictures remember in black that. and white where it was like... They were working. Like they like were selling stuff. supplements to nine-year-old kids so that they could get more masculine bodies. <laughs> That's that's super messed up, by the way. That is, that, yeah. You know, yeah. people talk about, but it started the women having body issues. Oh, men do too, for sure. I, I was more into the mechanical aspirations <laughs> than the than the. Uh, Neil was looking at self image. You were looking at ways to build a hovercraft. <laughs> yep. This, this speaks so much to our future lives, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Neil, bodybuilder. <laughs> that's hilarious. <laughs> so, is it? What did the oracle say? Uh well there's a pinewoodderby.org but it's not okay hold on it sounds like more like an independent DIY copyright/dcma claim <clears throat> just go to trademark.uspto.gov how about we just do a adult derby we'll just call it adult no that sounds like something <laughs> else entirely. yeah it does <laughs> that does what <laughs> Trademark. Trademark.uspto.gov, I believe. Uspto.gov. It's I'm I'm yeah. I'm surprised I remember that URL off the top of my head, but it may, it may be slightly wrong. Yeah, you You'll know, find it. it. You'd find it. The server has not been found. All right. Anyhow, anyhow, we can find out. We'll figure it out. We'll figure it we'll out. We'll have we'll have an. We'll make an announcement. We got some time. An, probably an Arabian chapter of. Adult derby. <laughs> Adult derby. <laughs> Adult car derby. Yeah, that's probably a workaround. Yeah, 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 yeah. This could be big. Woodpine derby. That'd probably get sued. That'd probably be too close. Yeah, well, you could just say the... Yeah, who knows? <laughs> we'll figure something out. Well, anyways, well, anyways, I think we can wrap this up, guys. We've been going almost an hour and 20 minutes. Um, cool. Guys, thanks for sitting down with me, man. It was a pleasure connecting with all you guys. Had a great time here at PV3. Been a pleasure, Drew. Uh, pleasure. If people want to follow you, got your guys' work, Neil, what's the best way for people to follow what you're doing? Um, honestly, our Instagram page is, and I'll have to spell it for you, but it's instagram.com slash A-L 
underscore B-A-Y-D-H-A. Um, and I have a neglected blog at twovisionspermaculture.com. That's the best way for me. Cool. Grant? Uh, best way to follow what we're up to, uh, versaland.com, V-E-R-S-A-L-A-N-D.com, and just put in your email somewhere and, and, and join the email list, or just check us out on Facebook. Same thing, search for Versaland. And uh, my Instagram is Grant Schultz, G-R-A-N-T-S-C-H-U-L-T-Z, but it's probably just pictures of fires and dogs and stuff. That's still awesome. Yeah, still pretty like cool. like fires and dogs. Um, code, code name. Again, you, you've said it a couple so, times. Oh, yeah. So um, if you want a super deal on trees and tools, if you want to learn how to graft apple trees or plant a bunch of chestnut trees or apple trees on the cheap and get ahead, if you use code SAMPLE, at newfarmsupply.com, you get 20% off absolutely everything. That's awesome. There'll be a, I'll put a link on the side of my page, and people cool. can just click on a picture, and we'll take them there. Right on. Yeah, and the, you put in the, the uh, discount code on the right side of your checkout page, just so you know. Okay, awesome. Guys, thank you so much. Everyone, thanks for listening. I hope you uh, appreciated these live from PV3 podcasts, and I hope you guys make it a great day.